You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this the son of Joseph? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three days and a half, three and a half years, and there was a, fam, a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet no, not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Great, thanks, Shayan. Just gonna trust the tech. Great, it's working. Yeah, as, um, hi, uh, I'm Nath, for those of you I don't know, I'm the senior minister here, and as Steve said, today I'm continuing this series on Jew- Jesus' Jewish roots, um, and today I'm looking at Jesus the Anointed One. I think this idea of anointing has probably had more airtime in the last 24 hours than in the decade before, what do you reckon? Um, partly because, I don't know if you know any of you were aware before we talked about it, there was this event that happened, a guy called Charles got crowned yesterday in central London. Um, And so, um, as part of that ceremony, as we said, he was anointed with oil. Um, I've got a friend who is an Anglican vicar in a cathedral, and so because of that, he's been coming to London quite a lot this week to do all these, like, fancy things, like going to Buckingham Palace for garden parties and wearing all these robes and all these kind of things, and I've been talking to him quite a lot about all this kind of stuff this week. Well, I've been doing that, and also I've been doing things like sending him links to uh, songs on Spotify because he's Irish and I've been explaining to him how his ancestors fought for the cause of republicanism for hundreds of thousands of years. (laughs) 
and uh, they would be turning in their grave to find out that, uh, that he was going to all of these things. And so I've been sending him links to songs about all these kind of things on Spotify, which, you know, it's, all the, it's like exactly the kind of thing that really helpful friends should do, isn't it? You know, that's, that's part of, you know. Anyway, so he's been talking to me quite a lot about all the kind of um, the symbolism of the, you know, the, the Church of England's involvement in this service. And one of the things that we talked about was this idea of being anointed with oil. Apparently, the oil that Charles was anointed with was created using olives from the Mount of Olives, not by Graham, unfortunately. Um, It was pressed just outside Bethlehem and made, apparently, to the exact same recipe that was used for the last coronation many, many moons ago. I also saw on the TV an interview with a high-ranking Anglican, um, and he explained on the news how this process was going to happen, the fact that they were going to get this screen and they were going to you know, put Charles behind the screen so that it was a private event. And he went through all of the detail about this. And not for the first time, I did think that if you weren't part of a church, all of this stuff must seem a bit weird. And I don't mean that specifically about the Anglican church. I think we all do stuff, don't we, every church, that if you were trying to explain it on a mainstream news channel, it might seem a little bit odd. So how did we get to this point? How did we end up with the new King of England taking time out from a coronation service, a very public event where there are millions of people watching, thousands of people lining the street? How did we end up with a moment in that ceremony where he steps behind some screens away from those crowds and has olive oil dabbed on him? Well, partly it starts back in Exodus chapter 29, the second book of the Bible. And here are the first few verses of chapter 29. This is what you are to do to consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two rams without defect. And from the finest wheat flour, make round loaves without yeast, thick loaves without yeast and with olive oil mixed in and thin loaves without yeast and brushed with olive oil. Put them in a basket and present them along with the bull and the two rams. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent and wash them with water. Take the garments and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred emblem to the turban. And then this bit, take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. This chapter goes on for another 36 verses after that with all of the different commands of what you've got to do to anoint Aaron and his family. Includes the slaughtering of bulls and rams and then the burning of the fat, the kidneys, the liver and the intestines. Now, no one is 100% sure what happened behind that screen yesterday, (laughs) but I'm guessing there weren't any bulls' intestines involved. Now, as you might know, there were no kings of Israel in those days. This story that I just read is about a guy called Aaron being anointed as a priest. He was like a kind of representative of God on earth, really. And the first time that we hear about a king being anointed, it's in 1 Samuel, a bit further on in the Old Testament, and it's a guy called Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And unlike yesterday, This wasn't really an event to be celebrated. There were two main reasons why Israel moved away from being led by priests to being led by kings. Firstly, it's because they didn't trust God. Instead of putting their trust 
in God and in the priest, God's representative. They said, hey, all the other countries, they've all got kings. They've got kings who rule over them and make all the decisions. We want a king too because we want to be like all the other countries. But the whole point of the creation of Israel was that they were meant to be different. They were meant to be, it says in the Bible, a holy people. Holy means different, set apart, different to the other countries. They were meant to show the other countries around them a better way to live. And the second reason is that they wanted someone to lead them into battle with other countries. And well, you know, let's just say this goes predictably badly. In fact, it goes so badly that within a century, the north and the south of the country are split into separate kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. There are two books in the Old Testament, one and two kings, which describe a lot of this history. And there's a really prominent theologian, a guy called Walter Brueggemann, and he says that instead of calling these books kings, we should put a question mark at the end. Kings? Is that really a good idea? Anyway, back to the anointing bit. So we've moved on from priestly anointing by this point in the Old Testament to royal anointing, which is what happened yesterday. But there's also a third bit of this too, divine anointing. That's why there was a screen yesterday, because there's a spirituality to this. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he was asked about the anointing uh, before the event yesterday, and he said, as we anoint the king and the queen consort, I pray that they would be guided and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. There was a screen so that Charles could pray privately. And it's one of those events where the idea is that you ask God to change you. It isn't that there's any kind of magic involved, but what you are doing is you are committing in that moment to being guided by that anointing of the Holy Spirit to live your life differently. It's really clear um, when we get to King David getting anointed a bit later on after Saul in 1 Samuel, this is chapter 16, then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. This wasn't about political power. It wasn't about being the guy in charge of the country. This anointing was about God's calling on David's life and David's response to that call. We'll talk a bit more about this later on, but what did it mean for Jesus? Well, let's look at those verses that Shayun read to us, Luke 4, probably one of the more famous passages in the Bible, I'd argue, and particularly these words from verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To get the full impact of these words, we have to understand the context of all this. The story so far is that the first three chapters of Luke tell us that Jesus has been born. He's grown up. He's got baptized, if you want to know a bit more about that. 
There's a podcast from a few weeks ago where we talked about that. And then he goes off to the wilderness to get tempted by Satan for 40 days. And then eventually he comes back. And in verse 14, it says, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And it says, news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues and everybody praised him. He was starting to get a bit of a reputation as a rabbi, as a teacher of God's word. Then we get to this bit. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, but on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the the prophet Isaiah was handed it to him, and rolling it, he found the place. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, let's pause here. Imagine the scene. You are a good, faithful Jew. And like you always do on the Sabbath, you are sitting in the synagogue, taking part in the service. Similarly to what we have here with a Bible reader and a preacher, somebody would have got up and they would have read today's scripture. Um, and they would have read it in Hebrew, which not many people in Nazareth would have understood. They spoke Aramaic. They didn't understand much Hebrew, but that is what happened in the service. Somebody would stand up. They would be given a scroll. They would read the scroll. It would be like as if Shayun had come up this morning and he said, today's reading is from Luke 4. And when he turned his Bible to the front, instead of saying, it's the new international version, he'd said, oh, it's the original Greek. And then he'd read it in the original Greek. How about next time, Shayun? No, I'm getting a shaking of the head. Um, So after the Hebrew reading, which was known as the reciter, you would get what is called the targamist. Now, this man always a man, obviously, Um, this man would recite a translation of that Hebrew scripture from memory in Aramaic, which was the language that was actually spoken by the people. It's unclear from what we get, but it seems like Jesus might have done a bit of both of those roles because it says that he was given the Hebrew scrolls to read. But clearly from the response that we get a bit later on in the chapter, it seems that people understood him more people than if he was just reading the Hebrew bit. So anyway, back to our imaginary synagogue. You're sat there, waiting for the person to get up and read the scripture. And the guy who walks past you on his way to the front looks familiar. Hang on, you think, isn't that Joseph, the carpenter's son? Oh, that's nice. I haven't seen him for a while. It's good that he's getting an opportunity to get involved in all of this. And then Joseph, the carpenter's boy, who you've known since he was a kid, says... The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he gives back the scroll and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. How would you react to that? If I'm honest, I don't think I would have reacted all that well. Anybody else? Because... We read this story knowing the end of the story, don't we? And I think it's easy for us to read this. And the bit where they all then turn on Jesus, it's easy for us to read this and go, oh, look at them. They didn't understand. They're not enlightened like me. But honestly, I think I probably would have gone, hang on. Who's this guy? Who does he think he is? 
He's too good for us now, is he? He can push off back to Capernaum if he's going to carry on saying things like this. It's like when I went to university and I come home for the first Christmas after my first term and I go up for a drink with all of my mates in a pub and like there's that one kid there who's like, now he says grass instead of grass and path instead of path and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, who do you think you are? You only went to Cardiff Uni. Um, anyway, all of this was to say that you can totally understand their reaction on one level, can't you? Maybe not the end of the story where it says they got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill in order to throw him off the cliff. But even that actually is understandable in the context of its day because what Jesus did was blasphemous. And blasphemy was punished by pushing the blasphemer off a cliff. And then if he didn't die, you threw stones at him until he did. But it seems like an extreme reaction, doesn't it? Surely there must have been a bit more to this than Jesus thought a bit too much of himself. Well, yeah, there was. See, when Jesus got up to preach, even before he got to the bit where he said this scripture is fulfilled, they already would have been annoyed. Not so you will know that the bit that Jesus was reading was from Isaiah 61. And here are the first couple of verses of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Sound familiar? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. This was an important passage to first century Jews and particularly to the people of Nazareth. Nazareth, the historians tell us, was completely Jewish. No non-Jews lived in Nazareth at all. It was completely Jewish until the fourth century. They were living under occupation, dreaming of a day when the anointed one, the Messiah, would come and would release them would proclaim freedom for them as captives, release from darkness for them as prisoners of the occupying force that was in charge of them, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, after that, there's this bit. And the day of vengeance of our God. Like I said earlier, the scriptures were written in Hebrew, but the people of Nazareth spoke Aramaic. And so in the first century, someone translated them into Aramaic. It was called the Targum. Remember earlier when I said that the translator in the synagogue was called the Targumist? Well, Isaiah 61, a bit later on, verses 6 and 7, in our Bible says this, You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. That's what we get in our NIV. This is what, translated into English, the Targum version of those verses says, you shall eat the possessions of the Gentiles and in their glory you shall be indulged. Instead of your being ashamed and confounded, two for one benefits I promise I will bring to you and the Gentiles will be ashamed to a boasting in their lot. Yes, we're gonna get them back for all the things that we've, they're doing to us. This is the language of the people on the streets. 
This was the language of the people who were sat in that synagogue on that morning. You shall eat the possessions of the Gentiles. That's what they wanted to hear from the people who stood at the front of the synagogue. So Jesus gets up to start to read, and the people would have been thinking, yes, I love this bit, and I cannot wait until he gets to that bit about eating their possessions. And what does he do? He gets just before the bit where we talk about vengeance, and he rolls up the scroll, and he gives it back to the attendant, and he goes and sits down. Hang on. Where's the good bit? Where's that bit about vengeance? That's the important bit here, getting back, getting our own back on the Gentiles. Just in that act of leaving out half a verse, Jesus is making a massive statement. He is saying God doesn't only just care about the people that you think God cares about. God doesn't want vengeance because this God, this God that's anointed Jesus, this God's love is bigger, broader, wider, deeper than you ever thought. He even, he even wants Gentiles. Jesus' anointing isn't just about Jews, it's about so much more than that. And the very thing that Jesus says is, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, we talk about interpretation here a lot, don't we? And I've studied a little bit of theology and I can tell you that this really is as simple as it comes. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set the oppressed free. This is uh, a guy called Gustavo Gutierrez, who is one of the pioneers of what's known as liberation theology. Liberation theology is the clear and prophetic option expressing preference for and solidarity with the poor. It's the idea that the Bible is on the side of the marginalized, on the side of the poor, on the side of those who don't have power, who are outside of the power structures of the day. And it's the idea that that should underpin how we live as Christians. This approach, liberation theology, has had a massive impact particularly in Latin and South America, particularly in poorer areas. And actually, for me, part of the reason why liberation theology is interesting is because it is developed in Latin America. Most new theological movements start in the West, often with an old white man in a library in Oxford. But another one of the interesting things about liberation theology is that its leaders are usually part of the community. Gutierrez is Peruvian, and he said, I come from a continent where more than 60% of the population lives in a state of poverty, and 82% of those find themselves in extreme poverty. This is different to a lot of the theology that you might read. It isn't a bunch of privileged people sitting 
in libraries getting paid to reread books and come up with something new. This is the people living in countries suffering from extreme poverty, writing up these theories as they put them into practice day by day, as they live it out day by day. Gutierrez would resonate with this calling of Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor. And he would do that not as a middle-class theologian who does a nice thing for those poor people over there, but that calling to work in and alongside those who are struggling, to help people speak for themselves about the support that they need, not speaking for them. Because that is his whole life. Similarly for Jesus, that was his calling. He was the Messiah, the chosen one, who was anointed by God to be the savior, the liberator. In the Jewish tradition, the Messiah, I'm sure you know this, was expected to be a political leader, a military leader, who would liberate the Jews from their oppressors. But we know that Jesus was a different kind of Messiah, wasn't he? A Messiah who didn't accumulate power, but gave it away. A Messiah who didn't go into war and conquer Israel's enemies, but loved them. Also, he wasn't anointed with oil, but after his baptism, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Just earlier in Luke's account of Jesus' life, in chapter 3, it says these words, At his baptism, the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven declared, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news for the poor, freedom for the prisoners, to set the oppressed free. The question for us this morning is obvious, isn't it? What's the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your life calling you to? What are we called to? And listen to this bit carefully. It might be that your primary goal, what you're called to, isn't to spend your entire life working to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Part of the issue, I think, when we talk about this kind of stuff in church is that we accidentally set up this kind of unofficial church hierarchy. We put church jobs above all the other types of jobs. If you're not giving up your career to go and run a food bank, you're not a real Christian. It's not what we mean, but it is the way that we talk about things. Sometimes that language that's kind of, it can come across a bit like that, can't it? Loads of people have said this to me over the years, people who have got jobs in the private sector outside of charities and churches, and they say it does sound sometimes like being a minister, running a food bank, all of these things, we're happy with those things, everything else is down here. My mother knows a woman who has a son called Howell. And Howell is the same age as my sister, Rachel. And just before they both went off to university, my mother had a conversation with this woman. And she said, oh, well, yes, Howell's just been accepted into theology college. He's going to train to be a minister. And then he said, she said, and what's, uh, what's Rachel going to do? And, uh, and my mother said, oh, she's, uh, she's, yeah, she's going to uni as well. She's, um, she's going to study maths. And, and this lady did that kind of like, you know that head tilt that you give to somebody when you're listening to bad news, like, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry that you've broken up with your partner. You know, like, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry that that's happened to you. Oh, you've lost your job. I'm, I'm really sorry. It was, you know, oh, your daughter's going to a Russell Group University to study maths. I'm, I'm really sorry, you know. Because that's the hierarchy, isn't it? Tell me, what were you anointed to do 
And I'll definitely respond more positively if you say you're going to be a minister. But here's the thing about Rach, my sister. She always, always wanted to be a maths teacher. When we were kids, in the holidays, she would set up a desk and a chair in the living room for me. <laughs> and she would write maths papers. And I would sit in my holidays and I would have to do the maths exams. And then she would mark them in red pen and tell me where I'd gone wrong. My mental arithmetic is better than it has ever needed to be because for my entire childhood, my older sister made me study maths to the point where when I finished university, I had a really boring office temp job. And when we were really bored, two people in the office would shout out numbers and I would multiply them together. 421, 29. And I would try and beat the guy with a calculator. 12,209, in case you're wondering. My nickname in that job was Matilda after the Roald Dahl character. <laughs> All because of my sister. So she got an A in GCSE maths in the olden days before you got A stars and before you got level nines and all that kind of stuff. And then she passed her maths A level and she went off to Southampton University to study maths degree. She passed that. She went straight from there into a maths PGC on her placement in a secondary school in Southampton. They loved her and they offered her a job at the end of that. And 25 years later, she's still there. She became the head of maths. And in the first few years after she was head of maths, the percentage of kids passing GCSE maths went up from 55% to 90%. Now, you know how important maths GCSE is, don't you? Even if you don't want to go on and study it, it's one of those qualifications that means you can get onto that college course or whatever it is that you want to do. And a jump of 55% to 90%, how many additional kids do you think that is who now have wider life choices and wider options because they've done that? She is now an assistant head and one of her main roles within that job as assistant head is to look after what in education speak they call the disadvantaged kids, the vulnerable kids. You know, these are the ones who haven't got a great family life. They haven't got a great background. They've not, they're open to social services. They've got all those kind of things that, you know, you might think would give them a worse chance in life. And her job is to manage those kids, to help those kids get through their GCSEs in maths or whatever else it might be. Doing this is her calling. It is her vocation. It is what she is to do whatever language you want to use around that. She is serving God far more effectively in that school than she would be if she'd gone off to theological college and been a minister. I am sure of that. See, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed my sister to teach. Of that, I'm convinced. And what we are anointed to how we respond to the call of the Holy Spirit in our lives will always be personal. We're not all called to the same things, and I thank God for that. I do think there is a common call 
which in endeavoring to live our lives following Jesus, we all take part in. I do think that we're all called to live out our lives as the best possible example of Jesus in whatever setting that we are in, loving our neighbors, showing kindness and compassion to all of those who we come into contact with. I think we all share that kind of common call together as a community. But I also think there's an individual call. There's a way that you respond to the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which is different to the way that I might respond to it. And our task is to work out how we live out individually in the best way possible. So what are you called for? Who are you called to be? What God-given dream are you nurturing? If you feel like you have an, a decent idea about the answers to those questions, are you living it out at the moment? And if not, what needs to change? And if you know what needs to change, what practical steps are you taking to change them? And if you don't feel like you have answers to those questions, is that something worth exploring today? What are you good at? What are you passionate about? Who could you talk to? And I mean really spend some time with, someone you trust, someone who will say, you're really great at this, you should look at this. I think with all of these kind of conversations, it can be really easy to look at somebody else and say, yeah, they're called for that. They are anointed for that, whatever language you want to use. It can be really easy to ask these questions of ourselves on a Sunday morning and then go home and forget about them. For this reason, I have this quote on my desk at home. One day you'll, be wake, you'll wake up and there won't be any more time to do the things you've always wanted. Do it now. It's an author, Paulo Coelho. I think there are always a million excuses for why you will stick to doing what you've always done every day and not take the risk to explore more. If that is you and you want to chat to somebody, come and grab me, come and grab Steve, come and grab anybody off our leadership team. We won't have the answers but we will listen to you and in my experience often what happens then is that you find out that you had the answers all along as you talk one day you'll wake up and there won't be any more time to do the things you've always wanted do it now I think the spirit of the Lord anointed Rach to teach I think the spirit of the Lord anointed Steve to preach and set up a charity I can look out and pick a load more examples just of the people I can see in front of me what are you called for who are you called to be what God given dream are you nurturing <laughs>